Hey y'all, I'm Sam Landis, they, them, and welcome to the Out Down South podcast. I am the co-founder of the Atlanta LGBTQ plus history project and a co-host of the Out Down South podcast. I was born and raised in Alabama, but moved to Atlanta to go to school eight years ago. I wasn't expecting to stay in the South after school, but I fell in love with the beautiful cultural scene and the LGBTQ community in Atlanta. I'm a designer at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, freelance art director, and queer culture and history nerd. With me, I have a former Yankee who now calls Atlanta home, the co-founder of the project, Rachel Garbus. <laughs> Hi, everyone. Guilty as charged. I know I cannot claim to be a Southerner, but I have adopted y'all, and it is the best pronoun ever. And no one can take it away from me. But yes, I'm Rachel Garbus, she, her. I'm a writer and oral history maker. I moved to Atlanta in 2013 for a job at a law firm, expecting to go to law school. Turns out I hated working in law, but I loved Atlanta. Atlanta is also where I came out as a lesbian. And for me, the South has always felt like my true queer home. So these days I write for Atlanta Magazine and Wussy Mag. I cover politics, arts and culture, and all things queer. I'm also a freelance oral historian, helping people record and preserve their life histories through stories told in their own voices. Each podcast, we're going to dive into the oral history of a different Southern LGBTQ plus history maker. LGBTQ plus history isn't just made in New York and San Francisco, but it has happened and is happening in big cities and small towns around the world. We have our own unique stories of resilience here in the South. This season, we will be focusing on Atlanta as the hometown of the project and what has been long known as the LGBTQ plus Mecca of the South. Here in Atlanta, the legacies of LGBTQ plus leaders who have changed the course of history mingle with the energetic voices of those charting new history today. This season, you'll hear the stories of 10 LGBTQ plus Atlantans in their own words, including people like Monica Helms, the creator of the trans flag, Julie Rhodes, the former director of the Names Project and the AIDS Memorial Quilt, State Senator Kim Jackson, an Episcopal priest and the first openly out queer state senator, and many others. We're so excited to bring you all these stories. We, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) This is Out Down South. So for this episode, we are very pleased to bring you some stories from Miss Dee Dee Chambly. So Miss Dee Dee Chambly is the executive director and founder of La Gender Inc., a nonprofit organization led by black trans women dedicated to the sport of transgender women of color in the metro Atlanta area. Dee Dee founded La Gender in 2001 to address the unique needs of the transgender community surrounding issues like HIV AIDS, homelessness, incarceration, mental health wellness, discrimination, and hate crime violence. She's a true survivor. She's lived with HIV since 1987, and she's just a tireless advocate for the trans community here in Atlanta and beyond. And in 2011, to honor her work, then-President Barack Obama named Didi a champion of change during a 30th anniversary commemoration of the beginning of the HIV-AIDS crisis. And she was the first Black trans woman to be honored at the White House, which is pretty amazing. Didi's signature phrase is l'amour and when you meet her it just really is the perfect word for her she just radiates love when Didi Shamley calls you l'amour ooh, there's just kind of nothing else like it we had the special opportunity of having her on our first panel of the mm. project and I got to moderate the panel and just getting to hear her stories um, she really touched all of us I think 
we were all in tears by the end of the program. Mm -hmm. Um, So we're really excited to kick off our um, podcast with Ms. Didi. Yeah. Um, So, uh, Rachel, can you tell me a little bit about the um, interview? Yeah. So I interviewed Ms. Didi at Georgia State's Special Collections Library uh, back in October 2021. Uh, and her daughter Pearl came too. So if you hear two of us giggling, that's me and Pearl. Uh, so I knew a little bit about Didi's story before I interviewed her, but it was just to hear her life story in person was just really incredible. You know, she how much she's experienced um, both so many difficult things, but also the triumphs that she's achieved in her life. Just really, truly amazing to listen to. I'm so excited to hear more. Where do we begin? Okay, so we've divided up the oral history a little bit just to give you sort of some major points. So in the beginning, we're going to start sort of in the younger part of her life. And you have to know that what Didi overcame to get to where she is now is is really, truly remarkable. Uh, She runs away from home as a teenager in the 1970s, and she's living in Atlanta as a young black trans woman at a time when hostility towards the transgender community is just the norm, just completely acceptable. Uh, so like a lot of other young trans women, she really has a hard time finding a job and she ends up doing sex work to make ends meet. And the police are just constantly rounding up these young women and they're throwing them in jail and they're incarcerating them with men um, instead of women. So the first part of the story is pretty intense, um, but I think it's a really important place to begin because it really helps you understand the story. This incredible woman who overcame so much and just really her faith and her determination to survive that helped her get there. I was um, doing survival sex work uh, at a young age, uh, age of 16, 16 years old. And um, my first time going to jail when I was 16 was a horrifying, terrifying moment. I never can forget um, that little girl, the look in her eyes behind those jail cell bars uh, and how just out of feeling totally lost and hopeless and uh, with no future. We were uh, sexually abused in the jail by the guards and by the men that were in there. Uh, That was not what I wanted. Uh, and I didn't want to be just uh, a sexual object for a man. I, I craved the love uh, and affection of a man, and, and that's what kept me going back to doing uh, survival sex work and enjoying it, because I did get a thrill out of being paid by a man, because that was like my first validation that I was a woman. I mean, a man's paying me for sex. He wants my body. I mean, that's the first thing a girl wants is to be validated in that way. But after that's gone, you know. <laughs> after that whole uh, 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 scenario is over, you find out that there's more to life than just that. And there's more to you than just that. Um, during that, during that, those times, the HIV had set in. At first, when the HIV hit, 
we was on a whole bunch of other girls as we used to all um, get in to rooming houses together and all of us stayed in the room house and we paid the rent together and light bills and all that together and that's how we survived. Um, we were all sitting watching the TV and they was talking about it was in, in LA. So, oh, that's not, if I come to Atlanta, we don't have nothing to worry about. Go on with the party. And and we kept on with the party. And I said, but did you hear what they said? They said that you can die from getting this disease from having sex. It's not like when we used to get gonorrhea and syphilis and we could go to the health department and get a shot and be sore for two weeks. You know, we couldn't go get a shot for this. And I'm, we were saying, I'm saying, we should be taking this seriously. I mean, you can die from having sex. I mean, that was just not in, in our reality at that time. Uh, disease from having sex. So, as time went on, and the, great, the, the disease progressed, um, and we started seeing our people in our community dying. Um, we start seeing the signs of HIV. And the signs of HIV made you look like the walking dead. You knew immediately when somebody had got it because the signs were already there. They, they came so overnight and everybody knew. So everywhere you went, when people saw you, they knew, you know, that you were sick. And what they called it then was the package. <laughs> you have the package. Yeah. The package. <laughs> oh no, not the package. Yes, the package. So, all during this time, I'm going back and forth, being ridiculed at the health department. That was a zoo going up in that health department to try to get help. I mean, they was just misgendering you, people were picking at you, people were making fun of you, they were laughing at you. And you were the joke of the whole room when you came in. And everybody knew when you came in. So you had to really have some strong skin to go up in there just to get care. So I'm trying to get care. I'm trying to find a housing. I'm trying to get um, some support um, because I couldn't get a job. Would nobody hire me? I mean, as soon as I opened my mouth, they knew who I was. They knew what I was. Or they presumed. Um, and I, there, there wasn't nobody gonna hire me. I couldn't even get a job at McDonald's. I mean, I mean, how am I supposed to eat? Y'all don't want me to eat? You don't want me to live? I'm a human being. I need to eat, I need to live. I give me a job, I wanna work. What can I work at? Um, and, and it was just, it was just like that, you know?
uh, the, the whole atmosphere. So trying to go back and forth uh, to get uh, help with the um, Department of Human Resources and uh, we can't help you. If you don't have HIV, there's no help for you. If you don't have HIV, there's no housing for you. Uh, uh, only place for you to for us was either the homeless shelter, and if you went to the homeless shelter, you had to dress in the um, gender you um, were assigned uh, at birth. Um, and that was just degrading that you had to address something other than what you were not just to have a bed to lay down or a floor sometimes. And then you're going to be uh, abused sexually um, by the people running the shelter and by the people in the shelter. So you got to deal with that all through the night while you're trying to get sleep. You got to deal with all that. So, you know, in between going back and forth and doing, going through the shelters and all that, I, um, I just started having a lot of unprotected sex. I didn't care. I, I felt like I had no, you know, it was nothing else for me. Uh, all of my friends were dying. And they were dying like so many were dying every week. We could not keep up with who had died. Did Liz die? I, and it was just, it was so depressing. Um, I guess go out of my depression. Uh, you know, during that time we didn't, we, uh, we were uh, escaping our depression by having a lot of unprotected sex, drugs, alcohol, clubbing. Uh, we would go to Midtown because the white men didn't know what we were. They thought we were models. They thought we were from Hollywood. <laughs> <laughs> But, uh, and, and we did, that was a way to escape um, our reality, and which the reality was we were living in our own world while the world was going on around us. Um, and we were dying in our own world while the world was going on around us. Um, I became positive in 87. That was at the end of the heyday. <laughs> um, things started to go really downhill then uh, in the gay community and in the trans community. Um, people were just dying so much death um, and there was no hope with the medication. Um, but I wanted to get help and I knew my first battle and my barrier was to go 
to that clinic again. <laughs> and I said, but I'm not going to let them stop me from giving the care that I need because I'm starting to love myself again. And I'm not going to stop them from uh, letting me get my care. So I went up in there and I went through the ridicule and the misgenerating. The people behind the desk, oh, the staff behind the desk, the nurses, everybody, just caring on, you know, like they ain't never seen nobody like me before. Like I'm an alien dropped out the sky. And, um, uh, I went through that and started taking my medications um, and um, I was going to the clinic and um, I was when I would go for my doctor's appointments I would always make a whole day down at the doctor's appointment talking to people signature songs rolling people in and out of wheelchairs up to their pasta. Helping folks get rides like I ain't got no car. Helping folks get rides, honey, using my food stamp to feed folks. Just doing, I was just so happy to be alive. So one day, a guy came up to me that I had known for a good while. He said, Miss Didi, why are you uh I, you work here? I said, no, I don't work here. He said, I see you pushing folks in not to place and helping them in not cars and stuff. I said, I said, Mr. Jim, his name is Mr. Jim. Mr. Jim, I don't work here. He said, do you want a job? And I said, oh, yes, I want a job. And he said, I got a job. And he gave me a job. They had a, the organization had a booth in the clinic. And he gave me a job there. And I ran that booth. And had my own little desk and everything right there in the foyer. And every day was peaches and cream at that job until the people in the clinic that had knew me before I transitioned and changed my name and everything, still wanted to call me that other name and still wanted to misgender me, purposely, most of them. Uh, and I tried, I corrected them, but they still insisted, you know, that they were going to keep me in my place. So, I went to the head administrator and talked with her about it. And she said, well, we're going to have in-service training on cultural competency. And I didn't know what that was. She said, I'm going to get somebody to help you. So she called Erin Swenson, who has, uh, she's a PhD trans woman. Uh, who's a Presbyterian minister here in Atlanta. She called her, and it was my first time of seeing anybody like this. That's a trans person, you know. And um, she was so um, enlightening to me.
So that job was um, started me. Uh, it empowered me. Um, and that's when I started a group uh, uh, for trans uh, people. So as you heard, Didi goes on to form an organization for trans women, La Gender Inc. And I feel like when we think about advocacy organizations, we think about these big, well-organized nonprofits with founders and funders and boards of directors and really beautiful fundraising videos with really good lighting. But when Didi starts her organization, she is starting completely new territory. At first, La Gender Inc. is basically a mutual aid organization because there's just no resources out there for trans people. But Didi, because she's Didi, starts thinking bigger. She sees that her trans sisters are suffering. She sees the way the system is antagonizing them. And while she wants to help them find jobs, she wants to keep them out of jails and get them access to life-saving healthcare, she also really wants to address those systemic problems, the ones that are making it so difficult for trans women to thrive and making them more vulnerable to HIV AIDS in the first place. And one big problem she finds is that in the midst of this terrible crisis that is just decimating trans communities, there's not actually a lot of information about trans communities available because of stigma around transgender identity and the association with sex work. The conversation around gay rights and around the HIV AIDS crisis is really kind of excluding trans people. And there hasn't really been a lot of research about how trans people specifically are being affected by this pandemic and what resources those communities need to stay safe and healthy. So Dee Dee, again, being Dee Dee, decides she is going to do something about it. Let's take a listen. I had to create a gender in order to have a voice because they wouldn't listen to me. Um, at, at certain meetings I went to, uh, I saw that my issues were not being heard. They kept saying that I didn't exist. They kept saying that there was no data to substantiate that I existed or none of my people. I said, well, there's plenty of us. I said, but they are being disrespected and and people are, are not knowing how to address them or how to treat them. And um, they're not coming to get the care and the services that they need. Um, because they don't want to be treated like that. I said, that's just a horrible feeling. And, and until I can train y'all, they're not coming up in here. And you're not going to see nobody but me. And and for a long time, they didn't see nobody but me at, at these different meetings and stuff. Um, uh, but... Uh, yes, she did the first uh, data collecting uh, for trans people here in Atlanta. Um, Georgia State then um, came in and um, helped us do uh, a needs assessment um, uh, for trans people in the state of Georgia, which had never been done. Nothing like that had ever been done. Uh, a, a statewide needs assessment uh, with uh, Dr. Du. Um, and Dr. Du and his team, they were so loving and they went into all the places. 
places that we go and they collected this data. And they had never been, a lot of the students, you know, had never been in a drag club or, <laughs> you know, been uh, on the corner and stuff, but they were so eager to learn and they were so excited and they were just, it was such a fun, it was such a fun project because uh, we had the right group of people uh, doing it. And um, that was part of some of the first data we got. Um, um, the state didn't want to gather uh, data on trans people. They did not want to take us out of the category that they put us in for funding, which was men that have sex with men. And we deplored that um, uh, uh, that category of being men that have sex with men because we did not consider ourselves to be men. Um, after we did get the data, they kept saying that there was enough data. CDC didn't want to reclassify. Um, we made a lot of breakthroughs. We got a lot of, um, uh, of support. Uh, we gathered more support um, when it came to uh, legislation um, because the HRC did not want to include trans on the equality bill. So we came up, me, Jamie Roberts, Aaron, all of us got together and said we would do a silent protest because the president, she didn't want to speak to us. We couldn't get a word with her. We couldn't get a meeting with her to try to change her views on not including us. Um, so um, we decided to do a silent protest. So uh, they was having a big dinner here fundraising dinner at the um, the High Regency. And we dressed up like we were going to the dinner. It was a $200 a plate dinner. So we didn't have a $200 plate, but we got, we pulled our little resources together and we got a hotel room. And we gave out little invitations to the people that were coming to the dinner. And we were dressed, we had on our ball gowns and things, like we was part of the, the hula. But we were giving that little tickets to people to come up to the re after reception for uh, 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 the side of protest. So, uh, we're up in the room, uh, people are start coming. But we have just about a little cheese and just a little wine. That's oh Lord. We need a full bar <laughs> and we need some more food. So this girl came from out of town from Texas somewhere. She just kind of just emptied her brow full of money said, go and get gin, go get this, go get that cup. So we had a full bar. So I said, well, you got to have food. So I was sitting there and I was 
was saying, oh, we got to have food. So I got up, I went to the songs with the Holy Spirit. <laughs> Bring it in. <laughs> and then, on top of that, I, what was her name? The lady that was over HRC. Anyway, she came up because she had found out. And she gave us a two and a half hour meeting, personal meeting right there. Because we had a, we had a, 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 like a business suite where you had an executive table and mm-hmm. stuff. Honey, she came in there and sat there and we gave, let her have it for two and a half hours. And after that, HRC changed their stance and uh, decided to include us in the legislation. So, those were the days. (laughs) 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 As they say, those were the days. And and from then on, it has been a, a lot of challenges uh, still um, because the jail was one of the things that was keeping uh, black trans women bound uh, that whole jail system. And when I went uh, into that system to, to change it, um, I started doing uh, focus groups with the girls in the jail and they started just crying about this judge that was giving the girls six months for island laundering. Island laundering is a charge they give girls when they can't get you for prostitution. So um, I said who is this judge? His name is Judge Riley. And one girl just broke out crying when she heard his name. And she ran back to her cell block. And I said, oh my God, who is this demon? So when I finally met him, he um he told me like this. He said, Miss Chaplin, the only reason I give them six months is I want to give them time to, if they're on drugs, to sober up uh, and to try to get their life together. So we didn't have any place to send them until you came. He said, and that was my only alternative. He said that was my only reason was to try to keep them in a place safe where they could get their mind together and not want to go back and do what they're doing. I said, but Judge Riley, they had no other choice. They trying to survive. I said, giving them six months, it's like you're using the jail as a homeless shelter. I said, but we need a shelter. We need this kind of housing. We need this kind of training. Um, I said, um, if you release them to me, I can uh, create a program for them where they could um, work on 
getting them a job, getting their GED. We can help them do whatever, getting their name changed, uh, all that kind of stuff. Because then we had office downtown at that time. So he started releasing the girls to me. And that, you know, people like Judge DeVoe, Judge Riley, me and Judge Riley was meeting so regular, we became friends. Because I educated him on a lot of things because um, he had a person in his family that had transitioned. And um, he said, she got a job. She said, everything's going well for her. So why this she can't do that. I said, because she's black. <laughs> mm-hmm. And that that part never came to him, you know, that that would be the major reason why, you know, his white trans relative, you know, made it through and that this and that he did. Yeah. But, you know, those realities we brought to the forefront and Legenda has been the voice that has uh, kept that uh, in the forefront, you know, because the community still suffers. You know, we look glamorous, we make it look good. We do, we make it look wonderfully good. But, um, the community is really suffering. So by this point, Didi's become pretty well known for her advocacy. She's speaking all over the country. She's been honored at all these different events. But in 2011, she gets a very important phone call. And I think this story might be my most favorite of all time. The morning that I got the call, I had been sick. Uh, I was feeling horrible, feeling really terrible. My husband had to feed me. And that morning, I saw the phone when it rung and it said, United States. I said, oh, honey, that's a bill collector. I said, I'm not answering that phone. Holy Spirit said, get up and answer the phone. <laughs> answer that phone, I know who it is. Answer the phone. I said, okay. I answered the phone. They said, hello. This is the uh, United States um, uh, Obama administration. Uh, may I speak to Ms. Shambly? I said, speak. They said, um, President Obama wants to honor you as a champion of change. And we would like for you to come to D.C. to a special reception. Are you available? It's a trick. So Lord, what have I done now? <laughs> then my big mouth got me in trouble. What am I going to do? So I said, Yes, uh, I'll be able to come. And uh, I just hung the phone up. I wanted to get out the phone so quick. I just could not 
and this could pass it, what had just happened. Could not pass it. And when we got to DC, you know, I was all dressed up in my little suit and skirt and pantyhose and the whole nine yards. And we were standing out there in the sun. And oh, you know, a girl started to melt. And I said, oh, they didn't bring us no water. I said, oh, honey, they act like we we came here, to be honest, for the, uh, the 30th anniversary of HIV and AIDS. I said, they don't know we sick, and we still sick. We on medications that we can't be standing out in the sun, and we need water. <laughs> so, they were, that day was a brutal, brutal day. We, we had five back-to-back -back deputy directors meetings uh, with each department and the department heads. And they all gave us their cards and no lunch. We had to go get lunch on our own. No water, we had to go get water on our own. And then I um, rushed back on a uh, red, you know, what they call red light, red, red eye mm -hmm. flight, because I was on a red eye flight that morning to get there. And I said, oh, I don't like the way I was treated. <laughs> I thought I was supposed to be honored. That didn't sound like nobody being honored. And so, all of the cha it was eight champions of change that were chosen the first champions of change from all across the country. It's eight of us. So we all decided that we were going to write back by the way that we were treated. Well, I was the only one that wrote back. So I get the phone call. United States. This is the White House. May we speak to Miss Shambly? I'm just speaking. Miss Shambly, we don't appreciate what you said. And we don't, because I have wrote email back to everybody. It's stating what I, how I felt. And we don't appreciate that. We know how to treat uh, uh, people that are disabled and with HIV. And we don't appreciate you saying that. Rah, 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 rah. I said, hold up. Wait a minute. I said, I, I'm, I will accept your apology for the way you're talking to me right now. I said, because you don't know. You was not the one standing out there in a pair of pantyhose in a wig and makeup in, in the sun for three hours. I don't care what you say, you know you know how to do. You didn't do it while I was standing out there. Oh, shut up, I got them together. He said, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Oh, Miss Jamie, please set my apology. I said, I will accept your apology. I said, but, you're gonna have to get it together about how you treat people when they come to call yourself honoring them. He said, oh, I will. We will make sure we will do better. We will do better. I will make sure all the departments will get this memo. I said, 
said, well, I accept your apology. So then I got the invitation to the White House for dinner. Mm. And none of the other champions of change were there because they didn't speak up. And I was looking for them. I said, why are they not here? I found the one over my mouth. And oh, it was so grand. I never been treated so grandly. We were waiting in the windows of the White House, and the guard comes up and he says, the presidential helicopter is landing. And it landed right in front of us. Oh, and it was, they had all the Christmas lights. It was so beautiful. And Michelle and President Obama got out of the helicopter. Oh, her dress was blowing in the wind. Oh, they looked like a Ken and Barbie doll. Oh, they were so beautiful. Oh, and they came, they floated into the White House. And they greeted us and said, welcome to your house. This is your home too. Make yourself at home. And they, we could sit on the furniture, the antique furniture. They had Austin's Rockefeller. They had champagne. Oh, they had the works. Oh, we were being served royally. It was the night a girl could dream of. And after that, I jumped in a cab and I flew over to the Martin Luther King uh, Memorial because I had never seen it. It had just been unveiled. And I collapsed right there in front of it. And I said, because of your blood, your sweat and your tears, that I'm able to be honored by the first Amer Black American president as the first black trans woman to be honored as a champion of change. And and I just cried. I, I cried long healing tears from the pain and suffering that I had been through to get to that journey. But I carried so many people on my shoulders when I went through the gates of the White House, I felt all my girls. I felt all my girls as I was walking through those gates, carrying them through there. And after that, the floodgates were open. And all you saw trans women, trans men, uh, everybody. We were having parties. The girls were falling in the floor. They were voguing. They were, oh. I mean, I was saying, girls, dance, 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 girls. We don't never know when we're going to get a chance like this again. And lo and behold, we did not know what was coming. But those were our last dance <laughs> in the White House of being invited. Because we went back and forth as champions of change uh, at least five or six times every year. We went back and forth and, and gave a report on what was happening on the ground. 
and what what were the people going through on the ground and you know the message was always that what we do on the ground is so important to how they're able to do what they're able to do if we don't vote the right people in and do um, do the right things down here, we're never gonna be able to get things done on a high level. So that was a, a, a the message always, you know. That's why I had to go vote today um, because I, I that instilled in me, you know how powerful my vote really is. She's such a great storyteller. Oh my God, just such a natural. Yeah, I mean, the story just really moves me, especially the moment where she talks about the gratitude for her ancestors. And then also this feeling of carrying her trans sisters on her shoulders. Um, You know, LGBTQ history has often erased the stories of trans people, and especially trans women of color which is part of the reason why we wanted to have Miss Didi first, front and center. Miss mm-hmm. Didi didn't do what she did for the recognition. It started out as mutual aid, as this way to, as this way to survive and support her trans sisters. Um, and yet we get this beautiful moment of her receiving honor from the first black president. We rarely hear stories about trans women of color. And when we do, they definitely don't have endings or moments like that. Yeah, I think that's such a good point. You know, I think that the trans community is still, you know, harmed in so many ways and trans women of color especially continue to be so vulnerable. Uh, And obviously, Miss Didi's had her share of really terrible things happen to her. I mean, she watched so many of her friends die. Uh, But to have her story just really be one of such triumph um, and really about lifting other people up, like you said, I think it's just it's so core to who she is that she's been able to bring so many people along with her in her journey. And yeah, I think it's it's been a blind spot in history gathering in general and understanding queer history is really centering the narratives of, of white gay people, of cisgendered especially gay men. Uh, So with this project, we were really trying to make sure that we centered different narratives and really uh, focused on different stories because queer history in Atlanta, there's a lot of different communities and they each really have their own experience. So yeah, I think it's really special. And uh, La Gender Inc. is, it's still a thriving organization uh, and it's still based right here in Atlanta. And in 2020, actually, so cool, they helped open a home in College Park here in Atlanta that provides safe housing for transatlantans who are experiencing homelessness. Uh, so if you want to learn more about LaGender Inc. and if you want to donate to support their work, uh, you can visit them at LaGenderInc.org or also find them on Facebook at LaGender Inc. Uh, yeah, and help support their cause because it's a really good one. Well, that's been episode one. We hope you'll join us for the rest of the season as we hear from nine other honored subjects who have made an impact on the Atlanta LGBTQ plus community. If you enjoyed this podcast and you believe in preserving and sharing Southern LGBTQ history, we invite you to support the Out Down South podcast and the rest of the work we are doing with the Atlanta LGBTQ plus history project by going to our website at atlantalgbtqhistoryproject.org 
and clicking the donate button. All gifts are tax deductible. We're grateful for the partners of the podcast, WSIMAG, the LGBTQ Institute at the National Center for Civil and Human Rights, and the special collections and archives at Georgia State University Library, where all the oral histories from this project will be archived. The Out Down South podcast is made possible by the hard work of an amazing team of LGBTQ creators. Co-founders of this project include John Dean and Rachel Ward. Project historian, Daniel Baumgarst. Development consultant, Patrick Long. Our audio engineer and producer, Casey Willis. And our amazing interns, Alyssa Zhang and Alex Campo. If you enjoyed the podcast, please like, subscribe, and rate the podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This helps other queer history lovers find us. If you didn't like it, don't worry about it. You can find all our episodes and more information about the project on our website at atlantalgbtqhistoryproject.org. From the whole team at Out Down South, bye y'all. Until next time.